Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle towards everyone. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Jenny. Hi, everyone. I'm Nick, if we get to meet. It's lovely to see you here. I wonder how you feel after those two verses that Jenny read. They seem kind of bland and underwhelming, right? It's like, is the word that God has for us today, pay your taxes and don't swear at anyone. Now go forth and be prosperous. You know, like it's, it seems pretty, you know, pretty low and a, a pretty simple set of instructions, right? And maybe you're feeling like, I come to church to, to be empowered and inspired. I come to church to be filled up for the week ahead to try and serve Jesus with my life. And all you've got to say is don't slander anyone. You know, like it feels like a random set of just things that have just been laid down for us. And they kind of are, to be real with you, but they are in a really profound and beautiful way because the way of Jesus is ordinary. It's to live an ordinary life, but it's to live an ordinary life in an incredibly subversive way, in an incredibly powerful way that that speaks and shines a greater reality, that, that puts aside the worldly ambition and the, the goal of striving and seeking to cultivate something. It's the kind of life that instead stays put, sits in contentment, and believes and trusts that God is the one who will do something. It's, it's not a sense that we must do this and accomplish this, but we believe in a God who takes the ordinary, weak people like you and me, and from a place of ordinariness, will accomplish incredible things. Don't, don't be fooled. Don't be fooled when you look at the gospel and think that there's not much happening, that it's not that important. Israel longed for a king, right? And they got one. It just wasn't the king they expected, right? Israel longed for a savior. It wanted, it wanted to be rescued by God, and they got him. And what did they do to him? Crucified him. Nailed him to a cross. Israel wanted to, to have the help of God, and they cried out. And what did God do? He came, and he helped them, but he didn't come in the way that they expected. Jesus came in backwater Bethlehem, born to probably a 14-year-old virgin girl. Pretty uninspiring, pretty unimpressive, and yet completely transformed the world to the point that we're sitting here in a church in the 21st century with billions of people calling upon the name of Jesus because the ways of God are not the ways of this world. And what God is calling us to might be a subversive, ordinary, yet incredibly powerful way of life. I think that's what's going on here. These are not just random commands. They are painting a picture of something incredible. Have you got your Bible open? We're just going to sit in these two verses. I need you to, I need you to read this with me. The first word, so important, remind, <clears throat> excuse me, remind the people to blah, 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 blah. This is saying that Paul, when he was talking with Titus and when he was setting up the church in Crete, he'd already taught them this teaching. And it's so important that he's put it in this short letter where he didn't have a lot of space, but he's included it because it's that important. And it's so important. He says, remind them. Tell them again what I already told them. Refresh them in what I already commanded. Out of everything that he's written in Titus, this is the only thing that he told them once and needs to tell them again. Why? Because it is essential. It really is. But why? It seems kind of weird. Obey authorities. Pay your parking tickets. 
Don't do anything dumb, okay? And if you do, make sure you go to jail for it. You know, is that what he's saying? You've got to remember the context here. We're sitting here in first century Rome where the emperor has almighty power. He's literally thought of as a divine being. Christians are marginalized, and they have an expectation of kingdom, of God bringing about something incredible. And what they could lean to, and which Christians have over the years, is to take up your swords and overthrow the government, to, to take matters into your own hands, and in some senses bring the kingdom of heaven to earth in any means possible. And Paul is saying with complete clarity, no, be obedient, listen to the authorities, do what they tell you to do, pay your taxes, be a, be a, be a quiet people who live and do what's asked of them. You've got to remember that who you are matters, not just because of yourself, but because it communicates to others. Who you are reveals the truth of what you believe. Who you are shines to anyone who looks upon your life to, to see whether there's integrity and to see whether your belief have any legs behind them. So what does it communicate when we're a people who obey authorities and actually just listen even if we don't agree and even if it's something that's a little bit, you know, you feel like it's a bit, con- you don't need to do that. What, what does it look like? What does it communicate to obey? Well, it communicates that we don't need the kingdom of earth to be our kingdom because we are a people of a different kingdom. We are a people, the kingdom of heaven, and that kingdom is already here, and we already have a king, and his name is King Jesus, and we don't need to overthrow the powers and the rulers of this world. We can just submit to them because God's over them. God's in control of them, and we all know that one day there's a moment coming where King Jesus is going to be brought forward in all of his might and his power and his glory, and all of these powerful kings that we look at right now, all these dictators, all these presidents, all these prime ministers, they will fall upon their knees with no ability to stand because they are in the, power, in the presence of true power. And they will fade into the background, and King Jesus will reign supreme for all time. And so in the meantime, you and I, pay our taxes, pay for the parking, even though it's easier not to. We do the little things because in doing those little things, we communicate. These authorities are just a breath in comparison to the kingdom that's already here. And really, that's Jesus, right? Jesus lived a life where he walked and lived and obeyed to the point where he even took upon himself stuff that wasn't his to carry and suffered the penalty of the law and was crucified. Jesus was the person who models for us what it means to live after God, and he, he walked that ordinary life and obeyed. That, that's what he calls us to. He calls us to a life that shines and a life that's different. So we're talking about authorities because it matters, because it speaks to what we know about God, about the kingdom, about the future. We then move to a bunch of other things like slandering and being peaceable, considerate, being gentle, all these sorts of things. And they're more of what we do to everyone. So there's like, who are we to authorities? Who are we to everyone else? And then right in the middle, there's this central bit, which I'll come back to because I think it's the most important part, where it says to be ready to do whatever is good. That's the heart of these verses where we're going to see that this is the life that God has for us. But I want you to see these aren't just random characteristics that Paul thinks are kind of important. These are all things that are explicitly spoken of Jesus about, and they're, they're, they're a picture 
of what Jesus did and how Jesus lived. And Paul is calling us to be the people that Jesus would have us be. People who imitate our way of life on our Savior. People who live in such a way that they reflect their Master and their Lord. This is a calling to become the same sort of people that Jesus was, because what are we doing as we grow in our faith? We're being conformed into the image of the Son. We're becoming more like Jesus. And so these are so essential because really, in their ordinariness, they are calling us to become like the divine and calling us to become this incredible light for the gospel. So there's a couple of words that are a bit tricky to um, translate, which is why these verses feel so bland, but they're actually powerful. Have a look at the second verse, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate. That word considerate, um, it, I mean, it, it kind of captures the word, but it's a little bit, it's lost its legs. The definition really is, I'll read it for you, not insisting on every right of the letter of the law or custom. It could mean yielding, courteous, considerate toward others. But even as I read that definition, what comes to mind? Not insisting upon every right of the letter of the law for ourselves. Isn't that Jesus? He is the infinite, eternal God. And Philippians 2 says, He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or used to His own advantage. Instead, He took on the nature of a servant. So, He's not just saying, make sure you think of people, be considerate. He's saying, Look to the Almighty One who emptied Himself, and that's what He wants you to do. Empty yourself of all of your rights, because you don't live for yourself, you live for others. The way of Jesus is to empty yourself of everything that you could claim for yourself and lay it all on the line so that you can love other people, including those people that you don't like or perhaps don't agree with, because that's exactly what Jesus did. And you come to that Last bit, which I thought Naomi did such a good job of talking about, always to be gentle towards everyone. Again, I just immediately pictured my two-year-old scratching the living daylights out of the twins, where I only know which twins which because they've got blood on different sides of their face, right? I'm like, be gentle, right? Like, that's what comes to mind. But that's not quite the full picture here, because the word here for gentle, it's the same word that's used for humble, but it's like humbleness in action. It's like thinking so little of yourself or less of yourself such that the way that you approach people is entirely fixated on them, not on yourself, because you're not living to build your own empire, to build your own status, to build your own life. You're living for others. This really incredible church once had a motto, living for Jesus, loving like Jesus. That's our motto, right? And you hear it every week. But really, it's the heart of the Christian faith because we look at Jesus and we model our entire life upon him. And we're all cool with that in theory. If you love Jesus, you're all cool with that in theory. But when it gets down to the nitty gritty, it's completely forsaking yourself, completely putting aside your own advantage, actually hamstringing your attempts to live in the eyes of the world, all for the sake of putting other people first. Here's my question for us, 10 a.m. Do we do that? Is that how you're living your life? I look at my life and I think, I really, really could grow in this. I think I could do more. I've been spending a lot of time, this is going to sound super nerdy, but I'm just telling you anyway. 
I spent a lot of time reading about the monastics, you know, the monasteries where the monks like retreated to live and they like, you know, woke at four in the morning to pray and chant psalms and it's all a little bit intense and a bit creepy. Well, that's what I thought. There's something beautiful because these were a people who took drastic steps to live a life of holiness and a life toward God. And I wonder what would it look like for, for a 21st century people in the North Shore to just reimagine it. What does it truly look like to live for Jesus? To just put aside everything that we could claim for ourselves, to lay it all on the line for Him and for others. And that brings us to the center point, I think, of this section. It's to be ready to do good, to do whatever is good. I think that's the the hinge point that everything the authorities and all the other stuff sits on. People who love Jesus, people who live like Jesus, they do good. They do, they do good to other people. This is the year of goodness. If you're new to church, this, this is just a, a theme that we've set for the year where we just want to bask in the fact that God is good and we want to take the opportunity to reflect on how we can do good. That's why we're in Titus because it kind of shines out here. But that's, that's really what this is talking about, that we would be a people who do good to other people, emptying ourselves, not thinking too highly of ourselves, just giving it all away to do good to other people, which is nice, right? That sounds great. My question for you is, if you, the closest people in your life could describe you with three words, what would they use? Isn't that terrifying? Don't you feel a bit naked if you ask someone to do that? Don't do it. It'll hurt your soul. But my question is, do you think they'd call you a good person? Or maybe use a synonym. Would they call you a loving person? A servant-hearted person? Someone who cares about other people? Is that what, what you would be described by? I'm not sure. And that terrifies me because I really believe, and the Scripture is pretty clear, this is the center of what it means to be a human. This is the center of what it means to follow Jesus, to give of ourselves to do good to others. I mean, the word itself is pretty bland. It just means pertaining to a high quality or standard, right? Like, it doesn't mean much, but when you start to capture the big biblical picture, it starts to get legs, right? Because you come to Genesis 1, there's just nothing in existence except for God, and God speaks, and there's suns, stars, planets, galaxies, water, animals, grass. I don't know what order, but every time He creates a bunch of stuff, it gets to the end of the day, and what does God say? He says, He looks upon it, and it was good, right? It was good, it was good, it was good, and then He gets to the end, and He creates humanity as like the crown jewel of creation, and He calls it very good, and so the very fabric of, of reality is the goodness of God coming out in good creation with everything being very good, right? Like this is, this is essential to the work of God because you get to Genesis 3, sin enters the world, humans stuff it up, but really at the heart of what they've done is they've fractured the good. The world is broken. Humanity is broken. The very good has been thrown away. And yet God himself, still good. Page after page of Scripture, patient, loving, kind, walking slowly, slowly, slowly to the point where good, goodness himself steps into the world. And as you look at Jesus, you witness goodness on, with legs, right? He just walks around, living a life, doing good, giving himself away for others. And then when he comes to you and me, he calls us in, he saves us, and he says, come and follow me. Take up your cross and follow me. And so we're called to live that same life of goodness. <clears throat> the problem is you can't, you can't check doing good off your to-do list. I mean, it would be really nice. We love that, right? Don't you love that feeling when you just like 
you hit the button or you draw the tick, you're like, man, I, I accomplished something today. We love that. And our legalistic hearts love that in faith. When we can do something and point to it and be like, oh, man, I am so holy. You know, we never say that because that wouldn't be humble. But there's just this sense of like, I served someone today. I served on Greenway, and I really got to help someone less, less well off than me. And I got to, I give to charity, and I give to church, and so that's me doing good, and I can tick. And all those things are incredible opportunities to do good, but Jesus's fiercest words were for those people who had championed this idea of ticking all of the boxes of doing good. The Pharisees, as they, they didn't just have the rules They put the rules around the rules to make sure they didn't even get close to breaking the rules. They did everything they could to be good, and yet Jesus called them whitewashed tombs. He called them hypocrites. It's very easy to be a believer, to look like you're doing things like Jesus would do them, and yet to be dead inside, and that's terrifying. I think the key word here is do whatever is good. We can't restrict ourselves. We want to actually work out in every opportunity and in every way, what does it look like to be like Jesus? Just living for, the, for the, the good of the people around us, for the people in our lives. And the key is that this comes because we've been filled with God's goodness, right? Like, you, I love this. So 3, 1 to 2 comes straight after 11 to 15, And that's where this beautiful picture of the grace of God that just comes and meets us and saves us and loves us, that's that's where these verses come in. Paul doesn't give us a command and then move along to something else. He gives us grace, and then he says, now go and do good because you've received good. And so our series is called From Grace Flows Goodness because that's the key. From grace, as we are filled up with, with all that we don't deserve in God, we have something to give to others. We've been transformed, so we start to live in a new way. Now, I think most of us are fairly on board at this point. If you're a Christian, you're like, okay, I've been saved by Jesus. I should probably do something for Jesus, living for Jesus, loving like Jesus. I could do that. Cool. But again, my experience in my life is I don't think doing good is at the center of who I am, just to be honest. I think sometimes I do good when it's convenient. I think in the obvious ways that I ought to do good as a Christian, I'll follow through. But as the fabric of who I am, as one of those key words that people might describe me with, I'm not sure. My question is why? If I've been filled with the grace of God and I believe in Jesus, He's saved me and He's transforming me, why do I not look like this? And I could put, put the same thing to you. How can we be people who know and love Jesus and yet it still isn't the thing that defines us? Well, I think the key word here, or the key phrase, is when he says, be ready to do whatever is good. It is so easy to let the ordinary and the urgent parts of life drown out what's most important. It's so easy to be distracted. It's so easy to live life in a way that people just get pushed out to the margins. And when you have an opportunity to do good, it's just interrupting you from what you're actually supposed to be doing. We're just, our lives are so full. So my question is, what would it look like to reorient how we structure our lives, not around the things that we think we should of, you know, making sure we've got a future, the the security of our vocation, um, a legacy for our children, um, ensuring the extracurriculars of our kids can keep on going. Like, all of those things are incredibly good things and important things, but doing good's the main game that those things support. It's not the game. 
the game is living for Jesus and loving like Jesus. So what would it look like for you, for me, to take that seriously and to reorient? Well, I think the, the be ready phrase is so helpful because you, can you imagine you're an athlete, you love pole vaulting. I don't know, what's, your, what's the most obscure Olympic sport? Shuffleboarding, is that a thing? <laughs> but you've got this, you're an athlete, you've got the Olympics coming up in 12 months, and you're like, well, I'm just going to eat KFC every day, have a good time, and I'm going to turn up and give it my best. You line up for the 100-meter dash, and you just get floored by these incredible leopards of men who are just flying down, because you didn't, you didn't do anything. You, didn't, you weren't disciplined, you didn't train, and this is the kind of word that Paul's using here. We need to be like athletes with a single-minded goal of living to do good for other people as we, we're loved by Jesus. And so we, we get down and we get ready. We prepare, we train, we wake up at 4 a.m., we cut out the KFC, which hurts my soul so much, but we do what we got to do because this is the main game. We've put it all on the line. Do we do that? Are we disciplined, self-controlled, as Naomi mentioned in the kids' talk? to put this right at the center, right at the forefront, because it is who we are called to be. Another form of being ready that I find really helpful is like a paramedic. Do we have any paramedics here? We love you if you're here. Can you imagine being a paramedic, just being like, oh, I left my first aid box at home. Oh, I'll just wing it. It'll be all right. You just jump in the, in the truck and off you go and someone's just bleeding on the side of the road. You're like, oh, I don't have any bandages. What do I do? That'd be ridiculous, right? Because paramedics, they have organized themselves, their van, everything that they need to have all sorts of stuff because they have no idea what they're going to face. They have no idea what's going to come across their path as they live um, and serve people and, you know, oh, no, you got bitten by a snake. I'll try and suck it out. No, you need drugs. <laughs> you need an antidote. We need to be prepared for whatever God puts across our path to do good. And so this is a moment, I think, for us to reorient ourselves Yes, we are loved and saved by Jesus, loved and saved to be different, but how do we be ready? How do we zone in? How do we put this first primary? And that might be your life looking very similar, but with a, a shift in approach. I'm not too sure. It's the journey we all need to go on. I, I used to be most impressed by impressive people. You know those um, incredible speakers who get up in front of thousands of people, and you're like, oh my gosh, my life got changed. I used to be impressed by, you know, those leaders, those impressive leaders where there's like crazy stories of big decisions they made and it changed everything. I used to be impressed by all those like impressive people. But the longer I've been walking with Jesus, the more I'm less impressed by that and more impressed by people who just quietly live for Jesus and turn their life to doing good. I think of George Mueller. Some of you might have heard of him. He's a German guy in the 19th century pastor, just earned an ordinary salary, um, but even as he started to get more money, he, he made a point of never earning beyond a certain dollar so that he could turn every part of his life towards building orphanages. That was his thing, because there are too many orphans in Germany at the time. They need to be loved. They need to be get The heartbeat of God is for the orphan and the widow, so he dedicated his life. There were days where he had no idea how they would come up with the funds to pay for food for the kids the next day. And they would just pray all night. And then the next day, something crazy would happen. In one story, the, you know, the, the delivery van broke down and out came all of these bread rolls to feed the whole orphanage. It was crazy. But I love this man because he, we wouldn't know about him if we didn't discover his diary and realize how incredibly God works because he just wanted to quietly do good. I think of Mother Teresa. I know we're not allowed to talk about her in a Protestant church. That's rude and stuff. But, but she's incredible. 
She was this Catholic nun who joined a convent and asked for this special permission to leave because as she sat in this convent, she could literally see out her window these poverty-stricken people who just couldn't survive. And so she just, she just left. She had no salary. She had no means of living. She just wanted to go and to do good, to love the poor and to be present in the community. It's incredible. To the point that, you know, decades later, she's got a Nobel Peace Prize because she inspired a generation to love the poor. It's incredible. I think of the single woman in our church who uses the time and the freedom that comes with being single to simply just be with people who others aren't being. She's with the lonely people. She's, she's a friend to those who others aren't friends with because she wants to do good as God has done good to her. I think of the ultra-wealthy family that you would just have no idea that they're wealthy because they just live a simple life, because they want to devote everything that God's given them to being generous and to being involved in loving people and doing good. It's incredible. I think of the pastor that has written a bunch of books that I've read that really influenced me and in how I think about ministry. And I always thought, man, this guy's cool. But I realized he was the real deal when someone told me a story about how they met with him. They, they were on a Zoom call for about an hour, um, and about halfway through, there was just this screaming, like someone dying in the background, like, ah! And the pastor was like, oh, I'm so sorry. That's Gloria. She's the homeless lady who sleeps on our deck, and sometimes she gets night terrors. You're like, that's an interesting fact. <laughs> but the more and more that they took to realize this, this, this pastor, despite having so much opportunity and influence and money from the royalties of their books, they gave it all away, moved to the slums of L.A. to just be present in the community with those people who needed to do good. Now, these aren't stories that need to be what we do, but aren't they inspirational of people who have seen what God has truly done for them and taken seriously the example of Jesus, and they've gone, okay, whatever it takes, I will empty myself. I won't consider what I have to be mine. I'll use it to love and do good for others. So, to wrap up, here's, here's a suggestion for us. This week, pick a gospel, I don't care which, read it slowly, don't worry about theology, don't worry about exegesis, any of that, just look at Jesus and observe what kind of man he was. And just think about your own life, not that you're going to be a first century, you know, dude, homeless dude walking around Galilee, but like for who you are in your context, make the connections. Another thing, I love this. I'm not very good at it, but I love it. Do you realize that almost every story we have of Jesus was an interruption? Like, he was going about his business of preaching and doing things, and then he didn't really set out to raise the dead or to heal that woman with the bleeding problem or to, like, cure the blind. They all came to him, and he was just so present and ready because he was ready to do what was good. Most of the opportunities to do good in life are interruptions, and yet we pack our lives so full that we get frustrated at the moment that something breaks into our schedule. You know, of course, we still need to do our job and honor, you know, the commitments that we've made. But how do we unhurry ourselves and, and get our minds and our souls to a place where we realize that God's at work, even in these interruptions, perhaps most of all in these interruptions? Have you, have you got a goodness journal that we use at church? Oh, I had one. I didn't bring it the year of goodness. We've put these journals together so that each day there's a little box so that you can write a couple of ways that you've seen God's goodness and reflect on how you've done good. What a great discipline to just start to put it at the forefront of your mind. How can I be this person that God has called me to be in Jesus? If you haven't got one, there's a box up the back. I'd love to give you one afterwards, so come find me. But to sum up, these verses are not throwaway commands. 
They are the heart of the Christian life because they're calling us to be like Jesus. And it's an incredibly difficult calling. No one's, no one's sugarcoating that. And yet to be people who have received the overwhelming love of Christ, we're called to then live out that love with other people. So I'm going to, let me pray for us that we might be those people. Almighty God, you are so, so good. So easily could have given up on us. Even to this day in my life, you could have easily given up on me when I failed, when I've fallen short. But your posture is always goodness, always kindness, always love. Lord, this room is full of stories of your patience and your compassion, and we just want to thank you for who you are. We just pray, Holy Spirit, would you come upon us afresh with the power, the conviction, the inspiration that we need to dedicate our lives to living like Jesus. Please, God, would you, would you inspire us with, with new ways that we could live? Would you provide for us so that we can simply get on with the business of doing what you've called us to do? And would you propel us into maybe many interruptions where you put people before us that need our love, that need our attention? God, you are good, and so we ask that you would help us to be a people who do good as well.